The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. This evening our sermon text comes from the epistle of 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to particularly be focused upon uh, verses 3 through 9. But we're going to read all the way up through that passage beginning at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to our God in prayer and ask for illumination as we study his word this evening. Indeed, O Father, eternal is your word. And as we approach it, O Lord, we pray that you would empower us by your spirit to understand it and to be conformed into the image of our Savior through it. We pray now that you would bless us, uh, that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts as we pay attention to what you have spoken to us here in this passage. We ask, O Father, that you would bless us for Christ's sake and that we would grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Savior this evening. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, many of you would not be surprised if I told you that I have had pregnancy on the brain. That happens when you're expecting twin boys. But this week, I have been meditating upon a particular component of pregnancy. And that component is the amazing work of the umbilical cord. Now, that might seem strange, but allow me to explain for just a moment. You see, the umbilical cord is a remarkable piece of human anatomy. It's really completely central. It's essential to the life and to the growth of an unborn child. If you think about it for a moment, it is the channel, as it were, that unites the child to the mother. And because it is that channel, it's where the child gets all of the necessities that it needs for life. 
You see, the child derives its blood from the umbilical cord. It gets its oxygen from the umbilical cord. It, it gets its, nurture, or its nutrients from the umbilical cord. Indeed, even the child's waist is removed through the umbilical cord. And as we list out the different roles of the umbilical cord here, you can see that if there is a problem with the umbilical cord, the child, it can't be sustained. The umbilical cord is central to the life of an unborn child. And as I began to meditate upon the topic that we've arrived at here as we go through Thomas Watson's book, The Godly Man's Picture, and we come to this particular section which tells us that the, the godly man is animated, as it were, by faith, I couldn't help but draw the parallel and make the analogy between the faith of the Christian and the umbilical cord. Now think about it for a second. It is the Christian's faith which is that channel through which God has united us to our Savior. It is, as it were, our faith that is the instrument through which we receive all the grace and the blessings that God the Father has poured out upon us as we are united to Jesus Christ. It is absolutely central to the godly man, to the Christian, in an analogous way that the umbilical cord is central to the life of the unborn child. And as we turn our attention then to this first chapter of Peter's first epistle, what we see here is that Peter is stressing upon his readers the reality that we're discussing now, that their faith is of absolute central importance to their Christian life. And because he seeks to demonstrate this, he draws out three aspects of the Christian's faith to highlight for them here in this passage. He first draws their attention to the role of faith in the Christian life. We're going to see that as we look at verses 3 through 5. Then next he turns in verses 6 and 7 to discuss the value of the Christian's faith. And then as he wraps this section up, he turns in verses 8 and 9 to speak to them of the glorious outcome of their faith. And he does this, as it were, to stress to the Christians that he's writing to the centrality of their faith. You see, as we back up a bit and consider something of the context of 1 Peter, we realize that Peter is writing to people who are suffering. And particularly, he's writing to people who are suffering because of their faith. There are many different opinions regarding the exact situation in which these people are in, but everybody has agreed that they are suffering some sort of trial, particularly some sort of persecution. We heard that actually this morning. You see, these Christians, because of their faith, seem to have been dispossessed. They seem to have been possibly displaced. Indeed, whatever their condition, they are in a lowly condition. They have lost much. And yet Peter here stresses to them that they still have something of central importance as long as they have their faith in Jesus Christ. Look with me, if you will, at verse 3, and we'll begin to consider something of the role of faith for the godly man. 
here Peter begins this section of his epistle by telling us that this section is really a blessing. It is a section of praise to God the Father, the Lord, or the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see here in verse 3 that really as Peter begins to address these Christians, he does so with the praise of God the Father upon his lips. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, particularly, blessed be the Father because of what he has done for us. He continues, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now here Peter is addressing the Christians and he's beginning to bless the Lord and he's beginning to do so, or rather as he begins to do so, he reminds them of what the Lord has done for them. Why is it that God is worthy of their praise? Well, the reason is simple. Because he has caused them to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, Peter is telling us here of our regeneration, or he's speaking to us of what we call the new birth. And he's telling us that God has caused these people to be born again. And particularly, he says that he's done that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now that's a very important statement he makes here, and we can't follow that, uh, that thought very far, but important to note, though, that this is a very uh, normal way that the New Testament talks about our regeneration. You see, in the logic of the New Testament, our regeneration is tied up with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And now you might ask, how is that the case? Well, it's the case as we see in places like Romans 6, because as God has united the believer to Jesus Christ, as Romans 6 says, in a death like his, he also unites us to him in his resurrection. And it's in that resurrection power that we find both our sanctification, but also we find our regeneration. And that's what he's speaking of here. God has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now he tells us that we have been reborn by God the Father. But then he goes on to tell us that we have been reborn to something. That we've been reborn to an inheritance. Now listen to what he says here. It's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it's kept in heaven. For you. Now, if you back up for a moment, you can begin to see what Peter is doing here. You see, remember who he's writing to. He's writing to people who most likely have been dispossessed of really all that they had. Perhaps they've severed family relationships because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps they've lost all their financial stability. They've lost any hope that they had for an inheritance. But listen to what Peter is drawing out for them here. He's telling them that they have been reborn, as it were, into a new family. And that because they've been reborn into that new family, they've been given a new inheritance. And the good news for them, as well as for us, is that this inheritance, it isn't going anywhere, is it? He, he lists out these three attributes. It's imperishable. It's, it's, it's not able to perish, as it were. It's 
undefiled. Nobody can make it lose its luster, as it were. It's unfading. And it's kept for us in heaven. Now, this is encouraging. Particularly encouraging for people who are being persecuted. People who are losing everything. Family. Inheritance. Land. Because of their faith in Jesus Christ. But he tells them that this is their hope. That they've been adopted, as it were, into the family of the living God. And they've been given a new inheritance, a living hope. And he tells them that he's going to protect it. It's kept for them in heaven, he says. But verse 5 introduces the particular subject which we're concerned with this evening. He tells us that who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You note the connection here between what he's already said. He said that they have an inheritance. And he's assured them, as it were, that that inheritance is secure. And one of the ways he's done that is by noting here that it is kept in heaven for them. It's out of reach of anybody who might want to strip it away from them. But he goes on to assure us of his protection of us as well, doesn't he? He notes here that by his power, he is guarding us just as he's keeping our inheritance. And he's doing that through an instrument. He's doing that through faith. You see what he's communicating here to us. He's telling us that just as he is protecting our hope. He's also protecting his faith, or our faith, rather. You can see how this would be tremendously encouraging for people who have lost much for the sake of Jesus Christ. Perhaps people who have been physically in danger because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Think about the irony of this statement. Many of these people may have suffered persecution may have had their lives threatened because of their faith. But now he comes and he tells us that while the world might look at our faith as a liability, while the world might look at our faith and say, why don't you just stop believing that? It's going to put you in danger. Actually, the very thing that has endangered them is the thing that God is using to sustain and to guard them. It's an amazing statement he makes here. That's a guard. Faith is a guard. That's its role in our life. It's amazing to think about that. And, of course, if it was just by our power that our faith was a guard, it wouldn't really be all that encouraging. But he tells us here that it's actually by God's power that we're being guarded through faith. Of course, this... As we begin to understand uh, the, the wonderful role that faith plays in the life of the Christian, uh, we can naturally begin to consider uh, just how valuable our faith is. And we see that further as we turn to verse 6. We noted earlier uh, that the book of First Peter is written to those who are suffering. And verse 6 is one of those verses which testifies to this. He says, In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, 
you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Look at what he's saying. He's telling them that in what he's just told us, in the promise of a living hope, in the promise of an unfading inheritance, in the promise of his power, which is going to guard us by our faith, we can rejoice even while we suffer, even while we're tried, as it were. And he makes an amazing comparison here between gold and our faith. Of course, that's where the title of our sermon comes from this morning or this evening. And of course, uh, Watson draws this out as well. It's the very first thing he says, really, in his chapter on faith, that faith is indeed more precious than gold. And gold, of course, is very valuable. It's valuable even today. It was extremely valuable in the ancient world. Uh, But Peter tells them that their faith is actually even more valuable than gold. And if you think about that for a moment, it's a beautiful analogy because gold is valuable primarily because it holds its value. And that's what makes gold so special, right? It has this amazing property to preserve its purchasing power, as it were. And you can see how this would be encouraging when he makes this analogy with faith. You see, faith just like their inheritance, as it were, is not going to be eroded away by the whims of this world. It's not going to be liable, as it were, to the inflationary pressures of some other forms of currency. Faith is going to last. And because it is connected to eternal things, it is of infinitely more value than gold. But he also draws out a few contrast here as well. You note that he says that uh, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. Of course, whenever you try gold or whenever you refine gold, what do you do? Well, you heat it up, right? And as you heat up gold, the dross comes out of it. It becomes more and more purified. And of course, faith is like that as well, isn't it? As we suffer in this world, as the trials and the tribulations come upon us, it causes us to lose our attachment to the things around us. It causes us to question whether it's worthwhile to store up earthly goods. And it causes us, most importantly, to focus upon eternal things. Particularly, it causes us to focus upon the Lord. As gold is tried, it becomes more pure. So as faith is tried, it becomes more pure. And yet, as gold is tried, little by little, over time, little pieces of it fall off, little pieces of it are lost, little pieces of it perish, in the words of Peter. But our faith, it isn't like that. You see, even though gold will eventually lose some value because that bar of gold will shrink over time as the jeweler allows little pieces of it to disappear. Our faith, in opposition to that, only grows. It only becomes more pure. 
it only becomes of greater value as it is refined and tested. (coughs) But then we continue in the verse, and Peter tells us uh, something else that we must learn about the value of our faith. You see, I, I suggest that if you were to go throughout this neighborhood and you were to knock on different doors and you were to ask people, how valuable do you think what we're doing this morning is? you probably get different answers, wouldn't you? Some people you know, maybe be a little bit more optimistic about what we're doing tonight. They might say, well, you're the kind of person who needs to believe in Jesus. That helps you get by. Maybe you're a little weaker than I am. Maybe you just need something to lean on. You need a crutch. Other people would probably be a lot less forgiving in their assessment, wouldn't they? They would probably say, well, actually, I think really what you're doing is a huge waste of time. And then there may be even another level where they would actually say, actually, what you're doing is, is evil. It's inappropriate. You are believing something that is false, and you're being led astray, and maybe even you're holding up the progress of society because of your beliefs in this Jesus. Now, you can hold that position today, and it can look pretty, pretty reasonable, really, can it, in the world? But there is coming a time where you can't. Because Peter here recognizes something. He recognizes that while the world might look at us and and, and they may say all these nasty things about us here and now, they may look at our faith and think it's a waste. They may think it's dishonorable. They may think it's not deserving of glory. They, They might think it's definitely not deserving of praise. There is coming a day when the revelation of Jesus Christ will occur. And when the revelation of Jesus Christ occurs, what happens? Well, think about it for a moment. The object of our faith is revealed. And when the object of our faith is revealed, our faith is vindicated. It's vindicated for us, but more importantly, it's vindicated in the eyes of all of humanity. You see, this is what Peter's speaking of here because our faith, though it might look insane now, it may look worthy of persecution now, in the end, when all is revealed, it will be seen to have been worthy of praise and glory and honor because its object has been revealed. That's an important concept for us to understand this evening, friends. The essential the essential thing to note about the value of our faith is that our faith itself isn't valuable. The object of our faith is of eternal value, though. You see, our faith is tested, it's tried, it's purified, and it can be stronger, and it can be weaker. But what gives it its essential value is not what's in us. It's not the strength of our faith or the weakness of our faith. It's the object of our faith. And brothers and sisters, this evening, that is good news. You can see how it would be good news for these brothers and sisters in the first century, maybe wondering in the back of their mind, was it worth it? 
was it worth it to be cast out of my hometown, to lose my relationship with my parents, to, to lose my inheritance? Well, yeah, it was worth it. And Peter is pressing that upon them, and he's pressing that upon us this evening. And it also draws us to make note of the fact that for the sinner who has no faith, well, he may have all the money in the world. He may be like the rich man in Luke 12 who is about to tear down his barns and build new ones to store all the great things that he has. But if he doesn't have faith in Christ, Friends, he's spiritually destitute. And that's something we need to all consider. Maybe there's someone here this evening who's counting the cost even now. Is it worth it to believe in Jesus Christ? Well, I'm here to tell you, yeah, it's worth it. And this passage is crying out to you that you may have everything you could have ever wanted. You may have all the money that you could ever spend, but if you don't have this, If you don't have Christ, you have nothing that is worth placing your faith in. Nothing. The text continues. We see in verse 8 that he goes on to begin to speak to them now of the outcome of their faith. Verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now note that you could divide these two verses, in a sense, into two types of outcomes. You see, our faith produces outcomes, and it produces, in this case, Two particular variations of it. First, verse 8 speaks to us of outcomes that we experience now. And verse 9 speaks of us of our heavenly, our eternal, our consummate outcome. But first, let's consider, though, the, the outcomes that we experience now. Look at what he says here. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Brothers and sisters, do you have the kind of faith that expresses itself in love to your unseen Savior? Friend, if you're here this evening and you say, no, no, I have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but but you have no love in your heart for the Savior, you need to examine your heart. Because Peter is clear here, the kind of faith, the kind of faith which is worth giving up everything for, the kind of faith that's of immense value, the kind of faith that is genuine and is guarding us by the power of God, is the kind of faith that produces an experiential reality in the life of the Christian at this very moment. And the first thing that it produces is love to our Savior. Friends, if we understand what Jesus Christ has done for us in living for us, in dying for us, in reigning for us, that ought to cause love to pour out from our heart to him. 
It ought to express itself in affections towards him. And it ought to affect, uh, express itself also in obedience to him. You see, the kind of faith that saves is the kind of faith that produces love. It goes on, though, that there's a result of this, isn't there? There's a result of this love, there's a result of this faith, and that result is rejoicing. Rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now, when I look at this text, I... I think, what am I going to say about this verse? It's a little bit difficult to put into words uh, a joy that is inexpressible. I guess that's the nature of it. But however you want to express it, this is clear. This is an intense joy. This is a, a consistent rejoicing. You think back to what he's already said. He's told us in verse 6 that, Because of this hope, because of this inheritance that's kept for us in heaven, we can rejoice even when we suffer. Well, brothers and sisters, faith in Jesus Christ produces an abiding joy that is not contingent upon our earthly situation. It's not contingent upon our earthly situation. We ought to be those who are marked by this kind of joy, this kind of rejoicing in our Savior. As he continues, though, in verse 9, he, he turns, I believe, his attention away from the outcomes that our faith has in our lives here and now. And he comes to speak about the ultimate outcome of our faith. And he tells us that the ultimate outcome of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the salvation of our souls. Now, This verse is somewhat contentious in commentaries because there are different people on different sides of the verse. Is it speaking of a reality to this here and now, or is it speaking of a future reality? Well, I tend to think that Peter generally speaks of salvation both in an already sense and in a not yet sense. And we've seen that already. You know back in verse 5 that there is a salvation that we're being guarded through that's going to be revealed in the last time. We've noted again in verse 7 that we will be... uh, that our, pray, that our faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's certain that Peter has an eye towards the future. And we've discussed a little bit of why that is. But I think also, obviously, this has an effect here and now. He's speaking of both. It is the salvation of our soul here and it is the salvation of our soul when the Lord returns or when we Uh, pass away it is that last and most abiding outcome of our salvation as we think though about faith and the faith of the godly man we can also think of another outcome that's not explicitly here but I think it's important for us to note you see, if you think about the umbilical cord in the life of an unborn child, well, the umbilical cord is central to the unborn child, as we've already noted. It does all these things that sustain the life of the unborn child, that nourish the unborn child, and that eventually, if everything goes well in God's providence, leads to that unborn child reaching a new stage of maturity. You see, there comes a time when the unborn child doesn't live primarily, or even at all, through the umbilical cord. 
but he's been brought safely through the trials, as it were, of birth to maturity. And now that child stands on its own, and it breathes on its own, it has its own blood, it can eat from its mother. It's self-sustaining, it's more mature now. And there's a sense in which this analogy holds even at this point, isn't there? You see, our faith has as its ultimate outcome the revelation of Jesus Christ, not only to everyone, but specifically to the Christian. You see, think about what the Apostle John tells us in his first epistle. He tells us that there is a day coming where we will see Christ and we will be like him. You see, faith brings us all the way home. It does. But it brings us home to the Lord and to a more mature, more consummate state. Where, in the words of the older writers, we don't have the kind of knowledge of God that's through faith, as a pilgrim has knowledge of a destination that he's going to, but but we have a knowledge of vision. You see, Augustine puts it best, I think, when he says that faith is to believe what you do not see, but the reward of faith is to see that which you have believed in. And brothers and sisters, our fate's ultimate outcome is for us to enjoy the blessed vision of our Savior. It's carrying us. It's guarding us on this earth. It is of the utmost value. It has as its outcome the very salvation of our souls. And particularly, it has the salvation of our souls as we are more perfectly made to enjoy the blessed communion with God that we have on this earth in a way that is more glorious and more wonderful than we could ever anticipate. And brothers and sisters, this is what makes faith central to the Christian life. This is what makes faith, as Watson says, a vital artery for the soul of the godly man. Let us meditate not only on the greatness of God and the glorious gift that he has given to us in our faith, but let us also meditate on where we are headed and on what we will experience when our faith has brought us home. Amen. Let's pray. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we bless you, O Lord, for you have caused us indeed to have been born again to a living hope. You have given us an inheritance which is kept for us in heaven, and you are even now guarding us through your power and by your instrument of faith. We thank you, O Father, that you have by your Spirit worked this faith in us. And we thank you, O Father, that you even now sustain us by it. And we pray, Father, that you would pour out your grace more and more upon us, that we would have a strong faith, that we would have the kind of faith that focused our attention on the eternal weight of glory. 
that we would have the kind of faith which made, as the old hymn writer said, the things of this world grow strangely dim and focuses our attention on what awaits us when we are made perfect in the enjoyment of you for all eternity. We pray this in Christ's strong name. Amen.